0: I love that sound, and I know we could keep going for a long time, but we're going to move into the message. It's always great to be in a room like this with people on like a rainy day. I love it. So... Uh, well, good morning, Doxa. Like I said earlier, uh, my name is Rudy Hartman. I get to be on staff here with Doxa. I get to lead and oversee our college ministry here at the Salt Company. And just a, a brief update for you. Uh, this last Thursday on State Street in Madison, we actually kicked off the Salt Company. So we're growing, we're rolling, we're getting there. Let's go. Let's hear it, students. The wave starts in the student section and I'm ready to rip. Um, so I, uh, I, I am just like... There's so many things I could talk about from that kickoff, but the, the thing that has kept coming to mind, um, even as I've been like, meeting with some freshmen and getting lunch with them and getting to, to meet people who are coming into Madison for the first time, um, I have not been able to like stop talking about how incredible our student leaders are. You'll see me on a stage. You'll see Katie and Nicole with our international ministry and Molly up here. You'll meet Jared. Like our staff, like, like it's, it's great. we only staff equipped, but we really are a student-led ministry. Our student leaders, this team of men and women, uh, really like carried the ball down the field this last 10 days uh, to a point in a moment of, of kickoff. And I am they're my heroes, I'm so proud of them. I could not, I cannot say uh, enough. So so thank you all for praying for us. Continue please to pray for us as we continue into on the semester. Uh, the kickoff feels like a big event, but it's the beginning. And so we're excited to see what God will continue to do. Um, on Thursday, I taught on Mark chapter two. And so if you were there, uh, cool, because we're in Mark chapter five this morning. So it'll feel like a continuation a little bit for you. For everyone else, welcome to kickoff message part two. i I'm. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 uh, as we continue our God is series this, this morning. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, while you're going there, Uh, we just need to have uh, a Menards appreciation moment here, just collectively, all together. Okay, I'm from Florida. Uh, There were our zero Menards in Florida, uh, which is a shame. Guys, and when I moved to the Midwest about seven years ago to join the Salt Network, our family of churches, I had no idea still what a Menards was. I knew what Home Depot was. I knew what Lowe's was. I knew how to kind of function in those realms. And then I learned that you can, you could say with me, that you could save big money at Menards, right? Like, like, it's just, it's just like top tier. I, I think it's great marketing, right? And I was thinking about it um, a couple of weeks ago, and I realized like that that's a great sentence so long as it like stays the same, right? Like you don't Want to like spend big money at Menards? You probably will end up doing that. It's not like ideal. Uh, you don't want to save a little money at Menards. That's not really attractive. Uh, you don't want to spend big time or spend little time, sorry, or save little time, whatever it is at M- Menards because that's like just not true. The place is huge, right? It, you you got to save big money at Menards. And 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 I was thinking like if you change a word, you actually change the the subject. It's good so long as like all of it is there. And, and they had me thinking about our God Is series that we've been working through. This is the last week of it, and we've been working through this idea that God is holy and faithful and able, and today we'll talk about how he's good. And you got to keep all four of those, You mess with one of them, you mess with the subject, right? It's not that he's unholy and faithful and able and good because then he'd be way too much like us to be God. It's not that he's holy and faithless and able and good because how do you trust a God that's inconsistent like that? No, he's faithful. It's not that he's holy and, and faithful and unable and good. That's your teddy bear God that you can hold at night that actually can't do anything to help you, to rescue you, to save you. It's a great idea, terrible deity and he's not holy and faithful and able but not good because what kind of a God would that be? we've looked at these four aspects of God. We've not been looking, it's so important to me that we see, it's not that we've been looking at four different aspects or like parts of God, because God's not made up of parts. All of God is in all of God. We've been less preaching four separate messages and more writing one really long paragraph as we've described this God, because all of him is in all of him. And if you change a word, you change the subject. And God is unchanging in his nature in his character, which is particularly important for us to remember as we jump into this word, good. If this isn't you, don't worry about it. But um, if it is you, perhaps you remember this kind of call and response uh, from when you were been in a church before where someone would say, God is good, and you would say, all the time. It's cool if you don't know that. And then they'd say, all the time, and you'd say, God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And we hear that, but we run into an immediate problem. Because if we're going to lean into the reality that God is good all the time and that all the time God is good, we have to address the fact that life seems hard all the time, and all the time life seems hard. How do we have God is good over here and the reality of life being hard over here? Perhaps you hear the phrase God is good, and an immediate question that comes to mind is that if God is good, then why, 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 why is there, why is there so much bad? I need you to hear this that when we say like you're welcome here at Doxa, we don't mean like just you put together without questions like that. We mean like all of you with all your questions coming into this place together. We don't say God is good over here in a building like this on a Sunday, and then life is hard the other six days of the week. It's that life is hard is actually a reality that every single one of us carry into a space like this, and we proclaim and remember that God is good and that Jesus is crowned over every every square inch of the hardness of life throughout it. We don't look at those as separate and dichotomal. We actually pull them together and we see and practice and follow the way of Jesus in the midst of life being hard and God being good. But it pulls us to this question, which is a good question. It is a good question. Why is life hard? Why is there suffering and evil and pain? If God is good, why is there so much bad? If God is good, why is my life so hard? There's two ways to approach that question. We could spend the entirety of the rest of our time talking about it from a philosophical bent, um, and that would be great. You can come get a cup of coffee with me. I would love to get into the philosophical argumentation for that. It's really helpful. Um, to be able to, to do so. But I've learned that even the philosophical approach to this question, if life is if God is good, then why is life so hard? Why is there so much bad in life? Always cascades into an emotional approach to this question as well. And that is not bad because it is a part of the human experience that as we experience suffering and evil and pain and badness and hardness, it evokes emotion within us because you're not a brain on a stick. You're a human being with a body and with a soul and with feelings, and with a mind, and with emotions. So when you experience bad things, there is an emotional response. And if we're going to get into the emotional reality of it, we have to ask a little bit of a different question, which is, why is life hard? Okay, if God is good, like how can there be so much badness? How can life be hard? But, but we've got like a step further, why is life so hard? So let me give you kind of the Christian worldview, Christian perspective on that question. Life is hard because sin is present." Now you might hear that and think, oh, you're talking about like my personal consequence of my sinful activity. And there may be, and sometimes is, uh, direct consequences for sinful activity, but there's also this reality uh, that uh, sin has actually not just inflected and influenced you, but has inflected and influenced all of us and the very fabric of reality and experience of life that all of us actually have. That sin has permeated the system of reality within which which we all exist and live. That there's a systemic experience of sin, both as a result of the actions of groups of people and individuals who sin, and it is woven into the fabric of our reality, which has been there from the third chapter of Genesis. It's the first sin of humanity. Sin permeates the state of existence that we find ourselves in. And for this reason, Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, that all of creation waits for the sons of God to be revealed, the children of God to be revealed, creation waits because creation itself was impacted by this first act of disobedience against God by humanity called sin. Sin stains all of our existence. All of reality was at one point marked by peace and wholeness and harmony. And there's this beautiful Hebrew word shalom that kind of covered that. And sin shattered shalom. It shattered the fabric of shalom. And now here we are a long time later experiencing the same reality that's marked by sin. So from betrayal to disease to natural disasters to corruption, sin permeates reality. Life is hard because sin is present. But while sin may have broken life, it did not break God. And of all verses, this reminds me of John chapter three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Note the subject here. God so loved the world. That that word is cosmos. If he wanted to say people, Jesus would have said people. If he wanted to say earth, Jesus would have said earth. He says the world, the cosmos, the people and the place permeated by the reality of sin. So Christ comes, he's given, and he comes to live, to die, and to rise again for the sake of liberating those who are trapped in personal sin that wounds their relationship with God and to uh, uh, make an attack against the permeating reality of sin to declare that one day, Jesus will return and make all things new. Christ comes so that we might know that God is good right in the middle of life being hard. So it's evil and suffering and pain and all that is bad and hard tracks before this idea. Life is hard because sin is present. But while life is hard, God is good. So with this in mind, what will you do or what will you do when I did not say if, when you experience the hardness of life. I pl- please don't hear me as like some 30-year-old up here that like has never experienced anything. Like this, this is, if it sounds like this is from my guts right now, it's because it is. What, what do I do when, not if, when I experience the hardness of life? When you experience the hardness of life, what do we run to? What do we go to to save us, to pull us out, to make a way out for us? This morning, from the life of Jesus, we'll see that when life gets hard, we're instructed and invited to run to the God who is good. I hope that was uh, enough time to get to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in the text this morning. We're going to see the goodness of God through four portraits as Jesus interacts with four people, and we'll land where we tick off this morning. When life is hard, we can run to the God who is good. So let's get into the text. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, other translations say, begged him, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him, Jairus. So let's set the scene. Jesus has just crossed over again from the Sea of Galilee. He's returning to the shore that he'd left from earlier in this chapter. People have looked out through the night across the sea. They saw a storm come, and then they saw a storm suddenly go as Jesus had spoken to it. These people on this side of the shore had heard the screams of a man on the other side of the shore who had been oppressed, that Jesus goes and actually liberates and frees. So they have seen a storm stop, and they have heard screams silent, and now Jesus has returned and he's come back. They've seen the storm die, and they hear only silence where there were screams before, and Jesus is coming back, and among those crowd that comes to Jesus is Jairus. Jairus is one of the leaders of the synagogue. This means at least two things. That Jairus is both public and powerful. He's public. He's broadly known in the community, and he's someone in the community that has incredible influence. He's a preeminent religious leader. Life takes place in the the Jewish kind of realm of life around the synagogue, and he's a leader of it. He's well-known, well-respected, perhaps even well-loved. Life is quite likely very comfortable for Jairus, and for Jairus— in this moment, life has very suddenly, very rapidly become very hard. His daughter is at the point of death. And in Jairus, we see a picture of a powerful, comfortable person who becomes very suddenly helpless. This powerful, comfortable person, suddenly helpless, that comes to Jesus. Verse 22 and 23 show that he begged him earnestly. Like... Have you ever seen a grown man beg? Like, I'm just trying to get that picture in your head. Like, have you ever, like, watched a grown adult man, hands and knees, beg someone for something? Well known, well off, suddenly on his knees, in the dirt, begging Jesus to come and help him. The powerful suddenly helpless. Everything was smooth. Ten-year plan was set, financially stable, house good, family good, gone, unraveled in a moment. Out of nowhere, his public status couldn't save his daughter, and his influence wasn't influential enough. Life has suddenly become hard for the powerful, comfortable man. So what does Jairus do? He runs to Jesus. I don't have time to tell you that this would have cost him dearly, but I do have time to tell you that Jairus would not have cared He was helpless and desperate, and desperate people aren't distracted by how they look to others who are around them. Desperate people are often incredibly focused people. There's one objective, one goal, one aim. Come, Jesus, come lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be made well and live. And in verse 24, Jesus chooses to go with him. It's interesting. There's no promise made to heal. There's no guarantee sealed. There's no contract inked. For now, it's just presence. It's just withness. It's just Jesus with Jairus. And it's here that we see a first portrait of the goodness of God through the eyes of Jairus and his encounter with Jesus. Jesus sees, hears, and knows what Jairus needs. Jairus needed help because life had suddenly, unexpectedly turned hard. So he runs to Jesus, and he experiences what it's like for Jesus to go with him. It's the goodness of God on display. When desperation due to helplessness sets in, Jesus sees, and he hears, and he knows, and he's present. It's the goodness of God. So Jesus goes with Jairus, but on his way to heal somebody, Jesus heals somebody. Verse 25. And a great crowd followed them and thronged about, pressed in on him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who'd suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, but was no better and rather grew worse. So here we're introduced to a nameless woman that has suffered from bleeding for 12 years. Just so we're clear, uh, I don't have time to get into the language, this ties back even the way that this is structured in the Greek ties back to the way that it's structured in Leviticus, uh, that she has a continued bleeding due to a physical condition that had been created by menstrual complications. And where Jairus' life has suddenly become hard, the woman is in the middle of life having been hard for well over a decade and in every realm of her life. Please don't miss the emotional context of this reality every realm of her life. Physically, due to the continued loss of blood, what kind of condition do you think this woman was in? She is literally experiencing being an anemic person. Because of this loss of blood, she was so constantly exhausted and weary because there wasn't enough red blood cells in her to get oxygen through her body. So she's exhausted, weary, and tired, but there's also a pain that accompanied this condition. So she is experiencing pain and physical exhaustion, marking her life every day for over a decade. Physically, emotionally how many times do you think she got her hopes up that one of the solutions that was offered to her by a physician would finally be the one to solve her problem and then how many times do you think she was crashed emotionally as again and again and again and again it did not help her their hope was lifted up and dropped over and over and over again Relationally, because of her condition under Jewish law, she was considered unclean. In fact, anybody who she touched or who touched her, or even if she touched furniture or anything, it was considered unclean. So who would be around this woman? She lived a socially isolated life, a life marked by distance from people who would not let her come close to them. Mentally, what kind of a mental state do you think this would put her in? Mind racing and slowing, uh, constant decision fatigue, a state of perpetual mental exhaustion. And finally, financially, the text says that she spent all that she had. She suffered under many physicians. So for care that did not solve her problems, she had bankrupted herself. And before we judge her for this use of her money, I just want you to imagine that you had a condition that left you constantly tired and in pain, emotionally crashed, relationally isolated, and mentally exhausted. How much would you spend if someone told you, I can take that away? Oh, did I mention spiritually, by the way? That took place on two fronts. She literally could not enter because of the, her condition, the synagogue She could not enter the house of God in her community to worship God because she was considered unclean. This strongly juxtaposes the reality that Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, is with Jesus as we see this woman who was not allowed to enter that synagogue that Jairus led. She couldn't get in. But let's take it even like a step further. Imagine for a moment that she prayed in just a really traditional fashion at the time, every morning, every noon, every night. And that in her prayers, every morning, every noon, every night, she prayed. She asked God to heal her body. She prayed three times a day for 12 years. That is 13,140 seemingly unanswered prayers. What does that do to you over 12 years? This woman knows the hardness of life. She knows what it means to be desperate for over a decade. So what's she going to do when she sees Jesus? Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even just touch his garments, I'll be made well. If I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. This woman who lived her life on the fringe has decided that all she needs to do is touch the fringe of the robe of Jesus and she'll be made well. And her pain, holistic pain, She's coming, and she's running to Jesus, and she risks it all to get to him. Remember, there's a crowd moving with Jesus. Verse 24, the crowd was literally pushing into Jesus, and this woman is walking through. Now, she's got to be wrapped up, head covered, kind of kind of arms in her, her robe so that nobody can recognize and nobody can see that it's her, because everybody in this community knows who she is, knows what she's experienced. There may have even been some physicians out, out here in the crowd, and anyone who touches her is, is considered ceremoniously unclean. So you've got to understand, this woman to her is not considered a person to them is not considered a person she's considered a problem she's an issue she needs to stay away, and the fury of the community would come down on her if anybody recognized that she was there. And all she wants, all she wants, she's willing to risk all of that. This desperate woman who suffered so long, all she wants is to just touch, just touch the robe of Jesus, get in and get out. And you gotta think, it's shoulder to shoulder. Just put this in your mind. It's shoulder to shoulder, dusty road, and the fringe of Jesus' robe is on the floor. So she's not walking up to him. She's like sliding in and out of people, trying to not be recognized. And when she gets to that outer layer of the people around Jesus, she's got to like crouch down and like reach her arm in. And all you just see in this is is just like just this forearm of this woman just reaching out, desperate to just touch the fringe of his robe. And she touches it, and what happens next is so incredible and an amazing picture of the goodness of God through the experience of this woman. Verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to them, You see all the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Who touched my clothes? Jesus For the record jesus knows who touched his clothes he's saying this so that the woman might know that he knows and so that the crowd might recognize also what has just happened so the woman comes forward what do you think the crowd does they immediately recoil away from her Her condition is so well-known. It's no surprise. Like I said, perhaps even some of her physicians were there. They all know her. They know what she's been experiencing. They know what it means to be around her. They recoil from her. Did she touch me? Did she touch me? Am I unclean now because of this woman? Everybody steps back. Like, I got to get you. Like, everybody steps back, like, immediately, like they're tripping over one another through this crowd because they've just got to get away from her. Everybody recoils when they see who this woman is. And frankly, even talking about the topic of this physical ailment of the woman who touched Jesus might make you recoil as well. They recoil when they recognize who the woman is. All, all except for one. And it's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of her physical condition. He's not offended by her emotional or mental exhaustion. He does more with her relationally in this moment than has been done with her in a decade, and he is unbothered by being touched with someone who others called unclean. He looks at her, and he says the word that she didn't even know she'd been waiting for her entire life. Verse 34, just the first word where he turns at her. Jesus turns, and he looks at her, and he looks at her, and he says, daughter, daughter. He looks at this woman and says, daughter, Rebecca McLaughlin sums it up like this. She does not think she can come to him directly, but Jesus welcomes her intimately. He looks at the woman who crouched down in the dirt to touch his robe, and he says, daughter. Jesus uses a term of belonging for a woman who had been told that she did not belong. Jesus uses a term of affection for a woman who had forgotten what it meant to be loved. Jesus uses a term of identity for a woman who other people had defined by her condition. Jesus uses a term of tenderness for a woman who embodied the harshness of life, where the entire Crowd looks at her and says, Distance. Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter. She reaches out and he responds, The rest of the verse, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the goodness of Jesus through the experience of this woman, where everybody else said distance, where she thought that she could only come in and out undercover in the dirt. Jesus looks at her, honors her, and calls her daughter. Friend, others might know your name, but call you by your condition. Jesus knows your condition, and he calls you instead by your position in him. Daughter, son. Not distance, not space. Daughter, son, accepted, belong, intimate, tender language of Jesus. It's a picture of the goodness of God. She reaches out, and Jesus meets her. Life is hard, and God is good. Now this feels like a happy ending until you survey this crowd that she's in. Someone want to tell me who else who's still in this crowd? Jairus. We're jerked back into reality after this woman has been healed, set free, delivered. She's experienced the tangible goodness of God. And then we look over Jesus' shoulder, and behind him is gyrus. What do you do if you're gyrus here? Like, how do you respond? You've seen Jesus do what you want him to do for your daughter, for someone else on the way to get to your daughter who you know is on the brink of death. Every second counts, every moment matters and then he calls her daughter. Like, Can you imagine in this moment that Jairus is like, Jesus, I love that you just did this but what about my daughter? Life is hard. Even in the middle of God being good. In the middle of this moment, there's an attempt to heap shame on on the woman and fear onto Jairus. And verse 35, while he was still speaking, Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can I just real quick, Jesus doesn't mind being troubled by your problems. He doesn't mind being troubled by your issues. He doesn't mind being troubled by the badness and the hardness that you experience in life. That's not in my notes. That's for free right now. Back on. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jairus, don't bother him anymore. Your daughter's dead. Everything you were afraid of happening has happened. So just push it, move on. But you know what else hears this? The woman hears this too. You see that this man is, just imagine like you're her. Like you see that this guy is next to Jesus. You kind of recognize him, even though you couldn't really go to the synagogue. So you don't really know who the leaders are there. But someone's come up to him and said, your daughter's dead. And then shame starts to breed within your freshly healed body as you put two and two together. Is this my fault? Did I slow down Jesus to get to this man's daughter? Was what I got that I was hoping for that was good? Has it cost this other person something? Is she now dead because of me? And I gotta let you know, Jesus won't have it. He won't let that shame breathe for a second in the woman. He won't let the the fear set in for Jairus. Um, Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, a loud noise, people weeping and wailing loudly outside. And when he entered, he said to them, these mourners, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, it's just sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Before we move on to the child, to this little girl, we need to talk about the third person, a really group of people that we see at Jairus' door. We run into a group of professional mourners. These are people who were brought in to make it clear that death has come to this house. Now, Jairus has a lot of status in the community, so it's probably a lot of people. It's a loud commotion. You could hear it up and down the roads, the wailing of these mourners. The flutes are playing. The cries are going out. They're lamenting the death of this little girl. They wail. They make a commotion. Now, I need you to understand, they don't do this because they're genuinely sad, but to create an atmosphere of grief in the home where they were hired. And Jesus comes to them and says, why are you doing this? Child's not dead, just sleeping. To which they respond to Jesus, not with words, but with laughter. Jesus has come to heal the little girl, and they laugh at him. They were there because they had a job to do. Not for the love of the little girl or the family. They've got a job. And now we've seen these mourners laugh at Jesus and turn into mockers. I think, let me just cut this off the pass. If you think I'm about to dunk on these individuals for mocking Jesus, you're wrong. It's easy to do that. How could they laugh at Jesus? Jesus. How could they chuckle it? He's the embodiment of the goodness of God. Don't you know? You're saying death has come, but life is walking in. And that's true, but just indulge me for a moment. These are professional mourners. They are professionals at being around grief. They have seen pain. Their like career is pain. The hardness of life, the difficulty of life is literally their job. Why would you even become a mourner like this? Perhaps because you yourself have a history, a background. You feel comfortable in pain. To see so much brokenness, so much hardness, so much pain, the questions dealt with at the beginning is now given a face. How could God be good if there's so much bad? There's cynicism in this laughter at Jesus. Their experience has become the ultimate influence shaping who God is to them. Their pain is actually seen in their mockery and in their cynicism. But I think, if I'm just honest with you, I think there's actually something underneath that. And I think that these these men and women who are outside mocking and mourning, I actually think they're just disappointed. I think these men and women who are mocking Jesus have experienced a disappointment, that there was a moment or a series of moments where they looked at God and they wanted him to do something and he didn't do it at the time that they wanted him to do it. And here we're confronted with an interesting question to ponder, what is the difference between the woman who said, I've got to get to Jesus and these people who choose to laugh at Jesus? I think it's fair to consider that perhaps between years one and 12, right? Right? these thoughts had crossed her mind. A Jesus, that God didn't do the thing that she wanted him to do when he, she wanted him to do it. Remember those 13,000 prayers where the answer was not yet? Like, why was she not a mocker or cynical or disappointed or laughing? Or perhaps she'd experienced these emotions, but it's clear from the text that they had not become definitive of her as it had become for these mockers who laughed at Jesus. What's the difference between the woman and these mockers? We've got to think back to the words of Jesus where he said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It's the proof of what is not seen. Uh, Theologians broadly agree that faith is a combination of three things. Knowledge, belief, and trust in God. And I wonder in these men and women who mock Jesus, which of these had been wounded to the point of disappointment? What had happened to them that their knowledge in his goodness had been so shaken, that their belief in his goodness had been so shaken, that their trust in his goodness had been so shaken. I wonder, I wonder if you were to sit down with them over at Finca or Colectivo, and you were to sit down over a cup of coffee and say, hey, w- w- what's going on? And they, they would maybe say, well, I think God used to be good, but I don't know anymore. I think he used to, I think he used to be, but I don't know anymore. I've seen so much. There's been so much, I I, I don't know anymore. I think it's here that we actually learn something about the goodness of God as humans experience the hardness of life that's really difficult to learn any other way. You see, it's easy for me to say that God is present with us in our pain. We've seen it in Jairus, but I think in these mockers, we actually see that God is graciously patient with us in our pain. That God is present and patient even as we respond to him with disappointment. Consider what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus is good at using very clear, very direct, and sometimes very harsh words to rebuke people, and that's not what he does to these mockers. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't shame them. He just puts them outside. And then, spoiler alert, Jesus heals the little girl and brings her back to life. And I wonder, like, I just wonder, I wonder What would have gone through the minds of these mourners and mockers like the first time that they saw this 12-year-old girl walk outside the front door of the house with her father? Like, what do you think that did for them? When they watched Jairus and his daughter that they were mourning because they were convinced that she was dead. What do you think that did for their knowledge of the goodness of God, for their belief in the goodness of God, their trust in in the goodness of God? I wonder what looking and focusing in on the visible goodness of God around them actually did for their faith in that moment. I wonder if it was just a moment of internal defiance when they were like, I've experienced so much, but I also can't deny what I'm seeing right here. I've experienced so much badness, but l- look at that goodness. I've got to hold these two together. What do you think that would have done for their faith? I think there's a practice that we're given here that all of us can walk out of this room and into our weeks and carry, that in the middle of our experience of life being hard, we have the opportunity and invitation to consider the goodness of God by looking behind us and by looking around us as we begin to look ahead of us. That we can look at the goodness of God behind us by reading Scripture and learning the history of the track record of God's goodness. Yes, there are absolutely people who have done wicked things in the name of God, but I'm talking about the goodness of God as shown by word and action in the Scripture, in the past. We consider those stories of faith, we consider those stories of God's goodness. We look behind us, and then we actually look around us. That as I'm experiencing hard and bad things, I can look to my left and my right and my connection group and see that the goodness of God is actually towards the individuals that are around me, I can remember that He is still good even when I am experiencing things that are bad. And I can borrow on the goodness of God that others are experiencing that can strengthen me and my knowledge and my belief and my trust and my faith of God as I look and move forward. We have a faith-building practice of looking behind us and looking around us to see the goodness of God in the lives of others and to share the goodness of God in our lives with those who are around us that might be experiencing hard and bad times. You borrow on the goodness of god from the lives of those who've come before you and those who are around you so that you might move forward in faith and when life is hard i look back and i look around i remember that god's been good and that he is good so i can grow in my knowledge of his goodness i can believe it i can grow just a little bit in my trust of it and my faith and the god who is good grows this is a practice which means it takes time time dedicated to actually sitting there And looking back at the stories of God's goodness, hearing the stories of God's goodness in the community and people around you, but it also takes time in the sense of having that repetition and having multiple repetitions over time. But what if the goodness of God that you've been missing, and I don't mean missing like it's not there, I mean missing like you're longing for it, is actually on the other side of this practice of remembering that he has been good and he is being good around you so that you can have faith that he will be good as you move ahead. This is where we see the goodness of God through those who laugh at Jesus. Even in their laughter, God is present and patient with them in the aftermath of their pain that looks like cynicism, mockery, and disappointment. And we know that because they'll see the daughter rise. Speaking of, let's close out on our passage and uh, look at the daughter. This girl, the text tells us, is 12 years old. 12 years of innocence in her father's house for every year that the woman Jesus healed had bled, this girl had been alive. And it's in this image that we see actually the kind of closing moment of the indiscrimination of the goodness of God that has been laid out across this portion of scripture that it's for both people and place, as we saw as the sea was, was calmed. It's for Jew and Gentile, as we saw with the Gerasene demoniac on the other side of the sea, a little earlier in Mark chapter 5. It's for men and women, as you see with Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. It's for the poor and the powerful. It's for the clean and the unclean. It's for the adult and the child. Life is hard and God is good. So what do you do? Where do you go when life is hard? Where do you run to in the hardness of life? Well, Jairus begged, and the woman reached this little girl is dead she can't do anything to earn the goodness of god to deserve the goodness of god she can do nothing to get what jesus will freely give she cannot even ask for it she is dead and so jesus comes to her verse 41 taking her by the hand he said to her talitha which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and they told her to give her something to eat. Jesus comes to this little girl and says these words to Letha Koem, It's an Aramaic phrase. The conversational language in the region and life of Jesus It means little girl rise. And here, it's just even in these two words, we see a picture of the goodness of God. Jesus speaks to her not in a formal language, but in a conversational, relational language. Jesus speaks to her with the gentleness of Talitha, which literally means little lamb, little girl, tender one one i care for jesus is incredibly gentle with her and then he says rise it's a command of strength we see the goodness of god through the words of jesus to letha coam gentleness and strength in this one moment through the goodness of jesus who is both strong and gentle little girl rise and in a miraculous moment she does Few weeks ago, I was working out at Planet Fitness. I know we got Orange Theory, what's up, and like burn in the house, and Princeton Club is like 90% of us, right? But um, I, sorry, I love all of them. I'm at Planet Fitness. I was working out at Planet Fitness. I still remember exactly where I was. I haven't been back actually since then. And I get a call from my dad, and he calls me, and he start, he goes into this like kind of timeline about like the last several days uh, for my grandma. And he goes like this day this happened this day this happened this day this happened this day this happened and I've got this like internal sense of foreboding and like dread and I'm like dad I've got to cut you off is my grandma dead he said no I was like okay please lead with that um right and so I had I just had this moment where he tells the story and he shares it and he tells me how she's doing I got to talk with her yesterday and I've been talking with her and And I shut the phone and I just sat on that bench for a moment and I was like what 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 would have happened if I found out that my that my grandma had died in a planet fitness like I love the way that my grandma follows Jesus if we raise up men and women through salt company that love and follow Jesus half as much as my grandma does I would be a proud man she's an example of loving Jesus more in her 90s than you do in your 20s, I'm inspired by her often, but what if the words had been, Rudy, Grandma's dead. Well, then if that had happened, then my grandma and this little girl would have had something in common. This little girl dies and Jesus comes to her and brings her life. She sees his face first and hears those two words, talitha poem. And my 99-year-old grandmother's eyes would have closed in this life and they would have opened in the next to eternal life with Jesus. She would see him. She would hear him as he said those, little words, uh, those words to her as well. Little girl, Rise. This is the goodness of God in a picture in the moment through the eyes of this girl that was dead and is now alive. Death is not the final word for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has the final word. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to liberate us from the system of sin, to remind us that he'll make all things new, but also to take away our own personal consequence of sin so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting eternal life. This is the goodness of God. The condemnation our sin deserves need not be final. He's good to send Christ to make a way where there was no way for us to know life, even in the middle of death. This is interesting because it's signified by a word that makes its way across this text. It's the last thing and then I'm gonna take my seat. And the word is soza. Soza makes its way across this text and you want where you like you see healing or well in this passage of scripture. This is kind of the root word of it. And soza is an interesting word because it means healing or it means to be made well, but it also functions as the root word in Greek for a word that we see and use much to describe what Jesus has done. It's where we get the word saved from. The body of this woman and the body of this girl, what happens in them reveals what happens to our soul through the salvific work of Jesus Christ, the healing work of Jesus Christ. The wound of sin between us and God is healed and he gives us new life through his life, death, burial, and his resurrection. The goodness of Jesus is seen through the experience of this little girl through the saving and healing work of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the goodness of God that the one who loves gives life to all who'd come to him. Life's hard, and God's good. I want to invite you to just close your eyes for a moment, for, just for focus and concentration. If you're new here, we won't ask you to do anything, just to sit and slow for a moment. Maybe this is the first moment you've slowed down for well, since you moved into campus or since you've kind of gotten back into the rhythm of the fall. Maybe this is the first moment you're slowing down. Just for a moment of focus and reflection with Jesus, I want you to consider who who are you in this story? Maybe one of the individuals reminds you of you, maybe a multitude, maybe all four in some way characterize you, whoever you are. I wonder if for a moment you might look through their eyes, through your eyes, and see the goodness of God through these encounters with Jesus. If you're a Jairus and you're in this room and you feel like something has happened and you feel suddenly helpless, you can come to Jesus this morning. He sees, he knows, and he hears, and he'll be with you. If you're the woman you've been suffering for a long time, you can come to Jesus. He won't say, be distant. He'll say, daughter. He won't say, give me space. He'll call you son. He won't term you by your condition he'll call you by your position in him if you're a mocker uh, some stuff's gone on in your life and your disappointment and god has reached the points of cynicism and laughter and mockery i need you to know that god is both present and patient i want to invite you to look at his goodness do the hard work of that to remember who he is to look back look around look ahead and come to him but if you're the girl, you're helpless and hopeless. You can come to Jesus, the giver of life. But what would happen if you stared at Jesus, if you stared at him this morning, and you came to understand what I and many of you learned as a child, that the familiar would become fresh, the repeated would gain teeth, as you remember that though life is hard, God is good. All the time all the time God is good so Jesus help us to remember that help us to know help us to see help us to remember help us to return God you know everyone in this room you know where we fit in this story you know better than anyone the hardness and badness of life you're acquainted with grief. You're a man of sorrow, a son of suffering, you know pain. and God, it's no trouble for you to be with us, for you to be our comfort, for us to remember that you see us, to be patient with us, to be present with us, to give life where it feels like there's death. Help us to see and to remember and to know that you are good, that you are good, that you, are good that you are good. Jesus, it's in your son's name that we pray.